Sometimes mixed martial arts can be more ruthless outside of the cage than in it, and that unquestionably applies to the worldwide leader, the UFC. From alleged unfair dismissals to monopolistic business practices that have eroded most fighters' bargaining power. However, today we are not talking about cases that specifically impacted a fighter, but those where non-fighters felt the all-powerful wrath of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And before the video, just a quick reminder to like and subscribe. We recently noticed only a few of you are getting notifications, so make sure to click the bell and turn those on. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and these are 10 people screwed by the UFC. Number 10, Burt Watson. In a glamorous business like mixed martial arts, several critical roles fly under the radar. Yet due to his tenure, but more so his popularity amongst fighters, UFC site coordinator Burt Watson became a prominent company figure. Personally hired by Dana White for UFC 30, the first event operated by Zufa, he was made responsible for every aspect of an athlete's fight week experience. He'd essentially act as an invaluable concierge of sorts who'd handle all of the logistics, including arranging transportation, training locations, and equipment. He would even personally summon the athlete to the staging area before they walked to the octagon, always with a booming war cry. And it was thanks to all of that that he was dubbed the babysitter to the stars. But then after UFC 184, news broke that he'd quit the company following an alleged backstage incident. He explained how Mark Munoz was somehow left with no way of getting back to the fighter hotel after the weigh-ins. Watson said he wasn't sure what happened because he personally sent transportation to pick Munoz up. Regardless, he was blamed and scolded by a high-ranking UFC official whose name he wouldn't disclose, although he did clarify it wasn't Dana White or Lorenzo Fatita. Still, despite 14 years of service, the altercation, which Burt described as unprovoked, disrespectful, and offensive, was enough for him to resign. By all accounts, the unnamed authority figure blew things out of proportion, particularly since Munoz didn't even complain. In fact, he quashed the rumors that he had anything to do with it and later apologized to Burt. Watson put zero blame on Munoz, but said that how he'd been treated meant he couldn't go back. Number 9. Cage Potato Back in the olden days of the internet, before YouTube became the mecca of all content, if you wanted to get your hands on some good sourced MMA news, you could venture to a number of different sites. Among these was CagePotato.com, who not only reported on the comings and goings in the world of mixed martial arts, but did so with their own satirical spin, creating mock comedic headlines and articles. Their first major public clash with the UFC came in October 2010, when Ariane Celeste posed for Playboy magazine, and Cage Potato, for some evidently non-satirical reason, decided to post the photos for free on their website. Dana's head went redder than the UFC logo, and according to founder Ben Goldstein called the potato, telling them, I'm gonna f you up worse than you've been f***ed up before. They were subsequently banned from all UFC events and had their press credentials revoked. Honestly, fair enough, but things didn't stop there. Then in April 2012, they posted one of their regularly scheduled satirical posts with Dana and John pictured together and the caption suggesting he would be sponsoring John for his fight against Rashad. Apparently, the joke fell short with Dana, who immediately demanded a retraction as well as threatening legal action against the slanderous post. Goldstein replied, letting everyone know that they wouldn't be afraid to fight back. We'll get our own lawyers involved and defend ourselves. We're not going to change the way we do business. Cage Potato was forced onto life support and eventually was shut down. At its peak, it saw over 4 million page views per month and had now prominent MMA journalists Mike Russell and Ben Folks as members of its team. This one, however, will go down as another W for El Presidente. Number 8. Jimmy Smith in some ways, Jimmy Smith's arrival in the UFC played out like a big-time free agency switch. Smith, a longtime staple of Bellator's broadcasting team, left the Viacom-owned company in late 2017 after they couldn't agree on a new contract. Rumors then spread that the UFC was interested, and when he appeared on Joe Rogan's MMA show just five days later, they hilariously tiptoed around it like brothers trying to keep a secret. If somehow or another they were able to work it out where Jimmy Smith was at the UFC. We shall see. That would be what I would like to see. We shall see how that goes. I would like to see that. We will. 
And then what do you know? He was a UFC employee 10 days later, and he settled in quickly too, but that's not surprising. Unlike most of their options for color commentary, he had an extensive broadcasting experience. There was Bellator, yes, but remember, he also commentated for PBC and had television gigs on Fight Quest and American Ninja Warrior. Moreover, thanks to the fact he was a former fighter and martial artist, he had the MMA knowledge required. So it appeared everything was going well, but then the UFC declined to extend his one-year deal. But it wasn't that he did a poor job. In fact, according to Smith himself, the UFC told him they were happy with his performance, like most fans were, by all accounts. However, the promotion made the call that they'd only be using their fighters in 2019, a trend you've pretty much been stuck with since. Yet Smith, ever the professional, didn't whine about it. He simply thanked the company for the year and went on his way. But it was unquestionably a short-sighted move from the promotion. Number 7. Loretta Hunt Spoiler alert, this won't be the last MMA reporter on this list. In 2009, Hunt, who worked for Sherdog, published a story detailing the UFC's policy for managers. It detailed how many, but not all, were denied backstage credentials for events, and in it, multiple sources claimed that the promotion was actively trying to drive a wedge between themselves and athletes. Sources even alleged that locker room bonuses were used to incentivize fighters into dealing with the UFC directly and without representation. They also claimed that some athletes were presented with contracts to sign without counsel. From the UFC view, some suggested it was to restrict unnecessary backstage traffic. However, since it wasn't a blanket rule, that argument didn't hold up. Another explanation was it was to stop managers from poaching fighters, which also didn't happen. Regardless, the UFC and specifically Dana White were furious and went on the offensive on Hunt, even though it wasn't an opinion piece, and they were contacted for comment. In a video posted on their official YouTube channel, yep, Dana White lambasted Hunt, and it was intense. Hey Loretta, if you're gonna write a story, you fucking moron, make sure it's fucking true and you have some facts. The UFC pulled the clip shortly after they posted it, but not before it landed Dana in hot water with Glad, who demanded an apology and Dana quickly obliged. He didn't apologize to Hunt, however. In fact, he doubled down and stood by his attack. Naturally, her credentials were revoked and she's never been given them back. This even led to CBS not covering Strikeforce after they hired her before the UFC refused her credential for Strikeforce's first show under the Zufa banner. Number 7. Bob Myrowitz If you're in the market for a good MMA conspiracy theory, then you are in luck. We all know the story of Zufa's acquisition of the UFC in 2001. It all begins with the original owner's SEG, which was headed up by Bob Myrowitz, and they were in trouble. In fact, they were on the brink of bankruptcy after the UFC was banned from cable. But then Frank Lorenzo Fatida with their business partner Dana White swooped in and purchased the UFC for $2 million. And as a result, they not only saved the UFC, but the sport in North America. And while most of that is indisputable, Bob Myrowitz recounts the story a little differently. SEG was indeed in trouble. However, they believed they were about to be thrown a lifeline. To get back on cable, a feat that most in the know believed would save them, they needed the NSAC to sanction them. And according to Bob, it was looking good. It looked like we had the votes. We were told we did. But then at the 11th hour, one commissioner changed his mind. It turns out that commissioner was Lorenzo Fertitta, that he had changed his mind and that we wouldn't be able to get approval. Myrowitz then alleged that Dana White called him to say he had someone who wanted to acquire the promotion. Give me one guess. Lorenzo Fertitta. The claims in question aired on the CNBC documentary, and Zufa, who was involved, immediately demanded a retraction, requesting CNBC edit the documentary for future airings. CNBC agreed. In a piece by MMA Fighting, inconsistencies were indeed found in Myrowitz's statements, including the fact that the NSAC records show that only a presentation, not vote, happened on the day in question. But that doesn't stop many believing that Zufa did Bob dirty, so you can pick your own side. Number 5. Greg Jackson in MMA, the role of a coach and the desires of a promoter are diametrically opposed. A coach generally puts their athletes first. As a result, they will make decisions in service of them, regardless of the external repercussions. Promoters, on the other hand, have the bigger picture in mind, and their actions are primarily in service of the event. 
So when Dan Henderson withdrew from his light heavyweight title headliner against John Jones at UFC 151, the promoter Dana White and Jones's coach Greg Jackson had different ideas for what should happen next. The UFC proposed a substitute in Chael Sonnen, a natural middleweight who was coming off a loss, but Jackson, ever the tactician, saw it as an unnecessary risk, and he advised Jones to reject the late-notice change, which he did. This led to the UFC cancelling the event, a first for Zufa. For the first time in, uh, in 11 years, we're going to cancel an event. They weren't happy about it, as you can imagine, especially Dana White, who dubbed UFC 151 as the event John Jones and Greg Jackson murdered. Here's Johnny! But he wasn't done there with the homicide-related charges. He'd also called Greg Jackson a fucking sport killer. What he didn't mention, however, was the UFC's role in the event's collapse. Whether you agree or disagree with Jackson's advice, the UFC built a thinly booked card that felt more like boxing than MMA. And that's not to say those on the undercard weren't talented. However, with Jake Ellenberger and Jay Heron in the co-main event, it seriously lacked star power outside of its main event. But no, according to White, it was all Jackson's fault. Number 4. Ariel Helwani I told you Loretta Hunt wouldn't be the only reporter on this list. Ariel, though, is undoubtedly the most prominent of his peers. Thus, his case is probably the best example of the UFC's um, complicated relationship with the media. That's between me and your Romero. Well, you, there is Thanks the- for asking. The day before UFC 199, Ariel reported that Brock Lesnar was close to finalizing a deal to compete at UFC 200. The former heavyweight champion had retired from MMA in 2011 and returned to pro wrestling, and the argument became an even bigger attraction in the process. So the story was a massive scoop, but that was the problem. Somebody else wanted to reveal it, the UFC themselves. They officially announced it at the pay-per-view, but were furious. So right before the main event, Ariel was ordered backstage where Dana White was waiting. And he said, get out of here. You're done. Your credentials are gone. You're not welcome here ever again. Following the exchange, he and his colleagues were ejected and told they were banned for life. Ariel contended that he didn't do anything unethical and that he simply reported accurate news. And love him or loathe him, it's difficult to disagree. I mean, imagine a reporter on the NFL beat getting blackballed by the Patriots for breaking a story about their latest draft pick. Anyway, the ban was lifted just a few days later thanks to mounting outside pressure, but Helwani wasn't back in the UFC's good graces. Dana White continued to trash him and even taunted him for crying on air. He's a, he's a jerk-off. Guy cried on TV for Christ's sake. His kids are gonna fucking see that someday. Ahead of the Maymac LA presser, Ariel was scheduled to work for Showtime, but just hours before uh, Showtime, Dana demanded that he was removed from the broadcast, and he was. Ariel also spoke recently about how difficult things were made for him at UFC events after he began working with ESPN, unable to go to the same places as other journalists, always to be kept away from Dana, and in some cases being separated from everyone else entirely. Number three, Josh Gross. Yep, we're not done with journalists. Ahead of UFC 55, several MMA-exclusive websites were denied media credentials, including MMA Weekly, Full Contact Fighter, and Sherdog. And it was not a twist of fate because it came just six months after Dana White publicly commended those very publications. And while no reason was given for the ban, there were theories, which was mostly related to the UFC's effort to quash sites publishing negative stories. Regardless whatever the truth, Josh Gross ended up getting the worst of it. He worked for Sherdog at the time, so he was naturally implicated, with his credentials being pulled for UFC 55 like his colleagues. But it got worse. He then allegedly declined a job offer to run UFC.com, telling Dana that he didn't think he could do journalism there. Moreover, he said he didn't feel right accepting it after everyone else was blackballed. White then told Gross he would live to regret it, and I guess he wasn't lying. Josh still doesn't have credentials to this day, despite working for major publications like ESPN, The Guardian, Sports Illustrated, and The Athletic. There are reports that he was banned for revealing the finalists of Tough Four before it aired. However, that happened after he was already blacklisted. Gross argued that it was indeed newsworthy because Season 4 wasn't a game show, and in the sense that it had legitimate implications with the winners receiving title shots. He did, however, ensure to reveal it at the end of his radio show, accompanied by a spoiler warning. Regardless, like in the aerial situation, the UFC was undoubtedly furious, and likely it was another reason to keep him on the banned list. Number 2. Stitch Duran 
When the UFC revealed the Reebok outfitting deal in 2015, reporters dissected it in every which way to try to determine its effects on the business. The prevailing wisdom was that some fighters would benefit, like those who couldn't attract lucrative deals, while others who could would lose out. But what nobody anticipated was how it would affect another set of essential players, the cut men. Well, until Jacob Stitch Duran spoke up. Unlike boxers, UFC athletes are consigned to cut man by the promotion, and therefore the promoter pays them, and like fighters, they were allowed to wear sponsorships. See Stitch's vest pre-UFC 189, but not anymore. The deal mandated that they trade their attire for Reebok gear, yet they wouldn't be compensated like the fighters. This meant they'd not only lose out their current sponsorships, but they'd get nothing in return. In an interview, Stitch revealed how it would impact this and other Cutman's finances, admitting he may have to pursue more boxing work. If they were not going to give us sponsorship monies and wanted us to wear Reebok, to me on a business aspect, that doesn't make sense. This led to the UFC firing him the next day for speaking out. In an interview with MMA Fighting after the fact, Duran said he and White had a tight relationship, but now he doesn't even say hello when they pass each other at events. Dana clearly felt differently. Stitch Duran and I were never friends. In the end, it all came down to the usual UFC fare, which is if you don't fall in line, somebody else will. Number one, Mike Goldberg. It was all the way back in 1997 when UFC fans were first introduced to Mike Goldberg. He replaced Bruce Beck as the play-by-play -play guy, and through a plethora of personal changes, he remained a constant even when Zufa purchased the organization from SEG. Although Goldie was never the most polished broadcaster, and as evidence, his detractors will point to you his extensive gag reel. It is all up! No, sorry. <laughs> But despite his faults, he was loyal, and he proved that in 2005 when WWE head honcho Vince McMahon courted him. McMahon offered Goldberg the lead announcer position on his flagship show, Raw. He then allegedly tabled a six-figure sum if Goldberg agreed to no-show an October 3rd UFC event. Are you sure about that? This was significant because the WWE and the UFC were head-to-head -head that night. So yeah, they basically tried to create a less cool reboot of the Lex Luger moment in WCW. Regardless, Goldie declined and re-signed with the UFC. He'd then serve another 10 years and lent his voice to many of the company's most iconic moments. But then in 2016, WME-IMG acquired the promotion and ordered a shake-up, including a new fresh sound, meaning Goldie was out. But despite his near 20 years of service, they only gave him a month's notice. Moreover, his departure was given little to no acknowledgement. Even Dana White appeared totally indifferent about it. Uh, you know, when these kind of things happen, I'd rather not talk about it. There was also no mention of his exit during UFC 207, his final UFC broadcast. But perhaps the worst of it came later when Mike revealed that he didn't hear from Dana once. And considering his tenure, that's a little sad. It didn't stop Goldberg from appearing in the crowd at the very next event, though. A big shout out to Luke Taylor for editing this video. You can find him and some of his amazing artwork on Twitter at cool2me underscore. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.